There was the North. There was the idea that people felt that parents should be more involved in education. But at that time, you must remember, there was only the Catholic ethos and there was only the Protestant ethos, and there was nothing in between. I wouldn't understate how difficult it was for someone of my conventional background to take on the establishment. It was an awful, awful battle, and there was a constant, you know, looking for money. It was, of course, very tough. It was not easy teaching in a, in a bedroom. Its time had come, and that was what really it was all about. This is the story of the Dorky School Project, Ireland's first multi-denominational national school. The story begins in Dorky in South Dublin in the Ireland of the early 70s, when all primary schools were either Protestant or Catholic. It was an Ireland on the cusp of huge social change against the background of the Troubles in the North and the liberalising influence of Vatican II. Two Dorky-based families, the Johnstons and the Highlands, had backgrounds of mixed religions and none. And in 1977, they had a major dilemma. Their young children had joined the small Church of Ireland primary school in Dorky, called St. Patrick's. This was a highly unusual school because it was co-educational, parents were involved at management level and it enrolled both Catholics and Protestants. The innovation was led by its principal, Florrie Armstrong. Michael Johnson remembers his daughter Bridget being welcomed at St. Patrick's, even though his wife was Presbyterian. We came along, Pat, I know, went along and talked to Desmond Murray, who was the rector there, and she said, first of all, um, I have to tell you, I, I'm a Presbyterian. Was this going to be a problem? He said, no, listen, I just have to tell you, what we're running here is a national school, a school for the whole community, and anyone who applies to come in here is, is welcome, and, and we'd love to see Bridget here. Uh, so that was very nice. We were very pleased to hear that. That was good. So we went in, and the school was growing, and then the school entered a period of extraordinary growth, and suddenly not just the poor children of the Protestant parish, but it was all the children of the Protestant parish, mostly, nearly all of them, and then from a wider range, outside the parish started coming in, and then the nonconformists, the Methodists and the Presbyterians and others started coming in, and the middle-class children of solicitors and doctors and things like that started using it. So there were some problems which came out of this, but suddenly there was enormous pressure on places in that school. St. Patrick's grew, and so did the pressure of numbers, and the rector was forced to adopt an enrolment policy favouring Church of Ireland pupils. With young babies, the Johnstons and the Highlands were faced with a difficult decision. Anya Highland. Suddenly we were faced with a situation where their background was Protestant, our, my background was Catholic, my husband had no religion, and here we were facing the possibility that our youngest child might get into the school. So that, I suppose, focused everybody's minds. My Sonia was born then in November 73, and Pat's Josh was born in summer of 74. And at that stage, we were facing this reality. 
And it's not coincidental that the Dorky School Project was set up as a limited company in December 74 because we were looking at newborn babies <laughs> and whose brothers and sisters were being educated together. But now this experiment, if you want to use that word, was in danger of being discontinued. These parents had a vision of a multi-denominational approach to education. So this new enrolment policy was a shock to them and to Florrie Armstrong. My husband and I had both been very interested in education. Bill, We had both been involved in the Investment in Education report in 1965, which is now seen as one of the key reports on education. I had worked in the department, but I had to retire on marriage. And Bill was now working in the department. My father also worked in the department. So we were very interested in education. So for anyone interested in education, St. Patrick's National School was an exciting and innovative place to be. The religious issue hit us straight on. Now, of course, we would have been all very aware of the history of church-state relationships in relation to education. At that stage, I had just completed my master's and I was working on my PhD, working precisely in that area. So I was also academically interested in the area of church control and place of the state and the place of the parents and schooling. So all these issues, I suppose, were coming together, but suddenly we were facing a reality. And I was pregnant with my third daughter by this stage. And so was Pat Johnston. She was pregnant with what was to be both of our last children. And so began the campaign for a new form of primary education in Ireland. Michael Johnston was an RTE producer he became the public face of the new campaign. His wife Pat remained in the background, serving on committees and doing fundraising. Bill Highland was a civil servant, the strategist of the campaign. His wife Anya, a liberal educationalist from a staunchly conservative background. This combination of skills was one of its strongest advantages in the long and difficult campaign that was to follow. But was there support for their vision of education? In December 1974, the group held its first public meeting in Dunleary to find out. Businessman Desmond Green was one of hundreds who turned up and he went on to become a key founding member. At the end of that meeting, I ended up being on the committee. And I think one of the reasons that, that Bill originally gave is he said, well, this guy knows nothing about St. Patrick's, so therefore there's no baggage. And I was lucky in that way that I hadn't any of the baggage from the previous sort of battles that had been fought in terms of trying to implement some form of multi-denominational education by using one of the existing denominational schools and trying to convert it. And I think that the general sense was that the conversion did go well up to a point, but that, in fact, one had to start from scratch. That conversions weren't going to be the, the way to get this thing going. The group faced considerable obstacles. First, they needed state recognition for their new school and a site to build it on. The Minister for Education, though, was Fine Gael's Richard Burke. While he supported a new type of community and comprehensive education, he didn't support the multi-denominational primary model. Barry Desmond was then a TD for the Dunleary area. He was a supporter and he became a trustee. When the report came out and in the early 70s, I was approached by Bill Highland and by Anya Highland, his beloved wife. And they talked to me about starting multi-denominational 
education in Dunleary, in the constituency. Now, in fairness, they were very effective campaigners. They roped in, for example, David Andrews. And David, coming from a slightly anti-clerical, Republican background, David Andrews was quite sympathetic. And he had the ear of Jack Lynch at the time. And then there was another serious politician in the constituency at the time, Martin O'Donoghue, who, with a Trinity background, an educational background, very reform-minded individual himself, and the three deputies in the constituency, uh, we campaigned. Now, we had not approached Liam Cosgrave, because we knew that Liam would not be particularly sympathetic, to say the least. But we did regard ourselves as having a huge stumbling block, namely the total ultra-Catholic ethos internally in the Department of Education and the Minister for Education, Dick Burke, who was my local constituency deputy in South Dublin. And he was singularly on approachable on the matter and it really languished in many ways uh, although we did make progress largely because Bill Highland as a civil servant knew the ins and outs of the Department of Education getting grants getting sanction for the building of the school slowly but surely going through the interminable procedures of the department and we succeeded. And then, of course, when Jack Lynch came in in 77, uh, Bill Highland got a boost through Martin O'Donoghue and the rest of us. And we went to Jack Lynch. And to the eternal credit of Jack Lynch, uh, he was quite supportive and said so publicly. And things went from there. The campaign sought broad political support. Michael Johnston. We kept this religious rule that you had to keep all the parties equally informed about where you're going. And it turned out quite useful in the end because at the later stage, it didn't matter who was in government and who was out. We'd have our one, the person who was known supporter of us up there, maybe asking a parliamentary question and the minister who might well be another of our people or someone who we knew well would give a response. Or maybe, you know, you could have then the opposition suddenly coming in with the supplementary questions, and we got a much better showing. The founding members were well motivated, and they knew how the political system worked. Desmond Green. We knew that, for instance, you could go to a politician in his local constituency. We had a motor car, we can go there. So if you if you were in a different social environment, you wouldn't have had those resources in terms of transportation, or the money for the petrol, or the knowledge that that was what could be done and that you might be able to shift the system by pushing it in this way or that way. And I think, so therefore, our socioeconomic backgrounds undoubtedly um, had a big impact on it. it. The sort of revolution we wanted uh, was assisted by the fact that we were well able for the system and we were not daunted by it and we had the resources within ourselves to be able to do the job. Bill Highland was a key strategist and he helped devise a survey which proved widespread support for the multi-denominational model. 
in the Dalky area. Bill Hyland was certainly the most intelligent and educated person I ever met. He was fantastic and one felt intellectually constantly as pygmies beside him. And he was one of these people who thinks like a chess player about 10 plays ahead of where where well is at the given moment. He was the core of the thinking and the building up of the programme. And it was still in the St. Patrick's Day that the main planks of the Dorky School project were put together. You know, small primary schools, schools that were there for Catholics, Protestants and others with equal right of access, schools that respected the whole broad range of things. Obviously, the co-educational was, you know, a fundamental part of it, and the democratic management. And Bill was the sort of shaper and the putter. He was quite happy that people would take his ideas and squeeze them around a bit and and formulate them, because he was always the broad-stroke man as to what you wanted broadly. But he had this vision. This was a vital political point to make, one that the then opposition spokesman John Wilson used in a debate on RTE Television's Seven Days programme. What struck me when, I think it was Tressa that said, there's no need for a multi-denominational school in Dalkey. Well, surely the people who should decide that are the parents themselves who say they do want it and consequently uh, they should have it. John Horgan was education correspondent for the Irish Times and he covered the story of the Dalkey School Project's campaign for recognition. He remembers that when he was leader of the opposition, Jack Lynch was a supporter of integrated education in the Republic. I can't remember the actual date, but I know Jack Lynch made a speech in Maynooth in which he more or less said that things were changing and that we had to look at different ways of doing things. And that was a fairly substantial straw in the wind. Now, he would have said that in the context of what was happening in the North, and the need to come to open ourselves more to what was happening in the North and to make changes down here because of the impact they would have on Northern opinion. But I think, from what I know of, of, of him, that he actually he believed it as well. He was seen as one of the big obstacles. Uh, I think that's per- to personalise it too much. I think the, the, the main obstacle was within the department itself. The, the bureaucracy in the Department of Education, you know, had... Everything was running on smoothly oiled wheels. And as you know, as fairly clear, once you disturb a bureaucracy, you know, the power of inertia is very, very difficult to shift. And it meant that if they were going to shift, if they were going to have to do different things and do them in different ways, that's a cost to bureaucrats. In 1977, three years after that first public meeting, the breakthrough came. Fianna Fáil got back into power and the new Minister for Education, John Wilson, gave the go-ahead. Now a site was needed for a new school and a temporary building to get them started. We went down, Desmond Green was there, I think probably Anya Highland, I was there, and we went down to talk in, in his office very soon after he'd taken office. And he said, now, what's all this about? What is it? And he said, now, are you talking about just one school? And I said, no, no, we're quite clear from the start. We're talking about wherever there would be the appropriate numbers for such a school. And the one we're talking about is just the first one. Then he talked us through the whole thing. And we said, we very much appreciate his calling us in. 
and he said that as far as he was concerned from a political point of view, he would certainly have no problems with this at all, and it would then just be a matter of going through what all the practical requirements would be for such a school. And he was very pleasant and very good, but of course he knew he was about to appear on the on the television <laughs> explaining that he would do this if he came in, and so good as his word, he did it and full marks to him. And he just said as we were leaving, he said, now the only thing I just suggest you know that it's important that we don't have any triumphalism about this. And I said, that's absolutely understood. I said, we'll wait till we see what happens. Yeah, that's great. But thank you very much and we appreciate it very much indeed. In 1970s Ireland, people who supported the teaching of religion outside school hours were considered very radical indeed. Michael Johnston faced down the critics at public meetings in the area. In particular, one Conservative campaigner, TGC O'Mahony. He was most well known for the fact that he used to run meetings down in O'Connell Street to raise money for sending statues of the BBVM to Poland, which is then suffering under communist rule, you know. But he was very against multi-denominational education. He came to one of our first public meetings. We invited him, and it was a brilliant move to do it because it did wonders for encouraging our own people for whom a lot of this talk of what we wanted was, in a way, they'd heard it all before, and that, that how could anyone else believe differently? It suddenly gave them all a perspective that there were different thoughts and different things and in and around about us all the place. There was a very interesting document produced in, in the sort of documentary war. It was a little book called Have the Snakes Come Back? It came from the address of the Knights of Columban. It was disowned by them as being their document, and that's fair enough, and it was produced by a body called CUSC, which uh, stood for the Council of Social Concern, if I remember rightly. And they were against all liberal issues of any sort, whatever they happened to be, and this ranked high amongst the liberal issues they d- disapproved of. The Catholic founder members faced public opposition from the pulpit. Desmond Green was a practising Catholic in a mixed marriage. I walked out of Mass one time in Dorky when the priest was saying, we all know what a Catholic is and we all know what a Protestant is, but what is multi-denominational? And said it in such a way that was an insult to the idea of being multi-denominational. And I just got up and walked out of the church. Anya Highland. It was very difficult, though. I mean, I wouldn't ever underestimate how difficult it was to break down the prejudices, both in church and state, against the concept. And no matter how often we repeated that we were not in the business of chasing the church out of education. That was never, ever on our agenda. You know, we were perceived as an anti-church group. In fairness, the Church of Ireland was never negative. And um, once we had failed, if you like, in our initial efforts, um, Mike has probably talked about that, to ask the Church of Ireland to allow St. Patrick's to be the first multi-domination school, once we had failed in that and moved on to this new agenda of setting up a new type of school, we had never any problems subsequently with the Church of Ireland. I wouldn't understate how difficult it was for someone of my conventional background to take on the establishment and remember 
my father worked in the department, my husband worked in the department. And while Bill, of course, was totally, totally behind this, my father wouldn't have been, and my sisters. But I was involved in a movement that was taking on everything that was held sacred. And I remember the day that the parish priest in Dorky publicly condemned the movement from the pulpit. I remember walking through Dorky that day and feeling naked, literally. I, it was like I felt everybody is looking at me. This is awful. Can I continue doing this, you know? And yet at an intellectual level, I knew I wasn't doing anything wrong, but it wasn't easy. Mike would never have felt that. And a lot of the others wouldn't have felt that. I mean, Bill, my husband, kind of enjoyed challenging the status quo. I must say I didn't enjoy it. It was when we were carrying out the survey and that other organisation called CUSC had been set up and they had a leaflet which they dropped into all the letterboxes all around the place. So there was a very focused campaign. Now they would take the point of view that we had dropped our leaflets into every door, which indeed we had done. And as far as, you know, this is democracy, they had then produced this leaflet, this other leaflet. They named me, they named my husband, they named obviously my companion. They named other people who actually had nothing much to do with it. They made assumptions, some of which were not correct, but some of which were correct. Mm -hmm. And of course, they saw this as part of a major international takeover. Uh, there was that sort of paranoia at that time that the movement for community comprehensive schools was being pushed by the World Bank to secularise Ireland. So that was the sort of implications of the leaflet that came out from Cusk, that this was the beginning of a major secularisation programme. There was also the suggestion that we were tied in with these pro-contraception, pro-divorce, we weren't as far as pro-abortion or pro-euthanasia yet at that stage, but it was pro-contraception that was the big thing. And I remember when Mike and I went down to the planning office in Dunleary to inquire about the possibility of Vasey Place being a building that might get temporary planning permission for the school. I remember the lady on the counter, a rather traditional lady, shouting back to the woman in the back, there's two people here asking whether this house in Vasey Place might be used as a school they were thinking of looking for planning permission and she shouted back is that the same building that they're using for the contraception movement so the assumptions that were being made that we were all part of a secularization movement for people like Mike that confirmed his determination to um, move forward but for people like me it was intimidating. In Doggy itself the local Catholic priest was vocal in his opposition even before the school opened its doors. For myself, raised Roman Catholic, to meet Mike Johnson, who was raised in a different denomination, and Pat in another denomination, Anya Highland was raised as a Roman Catholic. I think the challenges for Anya and I were quite significant, because in fact, if you're raised a Catholic, you will always have those elements within you and those commitments. And to, ch to deeply challenge them and challenge the structures that you've been brought up in uh, required a great commitment. And at some stage along the line, if you challenged them to that extent, you had to say, look, I've cast my die. I've got to keep challenging this and I've got to keep going with it. It was difficult in that way. Teachers face difficult choices when offered posts in the new Docky School project. Jane Doran was one of the first teachers. I just wanted to check with the INTO that it was actually a definite um, primary school 
that the Dogger School project was under the national school system, that it wasn't a private school. And they said that if I took the job and if it didn't work out, if things just fell apart, that I would never again be employed in the Diocese of Dublin. And they advised me not to take the job. So I thought about that, obviously, and I had to consider everything. I was a young teacher and I had a mortgage and that at that time, recently married. Um, and just, but decided to go ahead with this and was there for 30, gosh, 31, 32 years. Mary Stewart joined soon afterwards. When I applied for the job, I mentioned it to a friend of mine and he actually was an inspector in the department and uh, he said, you want to be very, very careful about taking a job in that school, he said, you could very well be blacklisted if the job didn't work out. He was, I suppose, advising me, really, because that's the way things were. The Dockey School project opened its doors in September 1978 in a temporary building in Vesey Place in Monkstown. It was a three-storey private house which used bedrooms for classrooms. It was bought by a group of trustees who pooled their savings and took out a loan to buy the building for its first 92 pupils. We got a little signal that it was about to come on the market and we moved in very quickly and we got it. And we put together a little group of people and we bought that house in advance of it going public. And we then rented it to the Dorky School Project to open their school in it. That opening day in VZ Place is still strong in the memories of the surviving founders for different reasons. Desmond Green. We all knew we were on an adventure uh, in some sense and it was a great achievement. I think the children were all hyped up because their parents had all been hyped up, you know. So everybody was slightly high, I think, on that day and we could hardly believe as we sort of left our children in the school that this thing had happened and I think most of us were going around a little dazed until we had to go back and pick up the children again. We couldn't believe that we were picking up the young people from a school that was the result of our work here. Finally, we're putting into place the ideas that we had about the type of school that we wanted and the way it should be structured and the way teachers and children and parents should interact. But Anya Highland had contrasting memories. I was terrified because we had no bylaw approval to open it. We had only heard that three days beforehand. I couldn't believe it. I spent that whole summer. It was an appalling summer for me. We had to get the building ready. I didn't mind that. I didn't mind any of the physical work. But we were working without permission. Uh, And remember, with my conventional background, it was inconceivable that one would take risks. I was a total, I came from a total non-risk-taking family. And here we were taking a risk. We had applied when we bought the house in August. We had no planning permission. We applied for planning permission and two days before the school was due to open, we were refused both planning permission and bylaw approval. And we wrote around to every parent, parent of each one of the 92 children who had enrolled and told them this and told the teachers that. To me, this was, I I would never wish to go through it again. The sense of responsibility that not just, it was three teachers' jobs and 92 children who were coming to a building which had the corporation wished to, they could have come and simply forbidden us to allow them into the building. 
I went down at the beginning. My daughter had started. We enrolled her. But I stood there. I can still remember it in fear and trembling that the corporation men would come and close us down. So I must say, I didn't get the satisfaction the others got until the day the planning permission came through, which was a good few months later. And of course, there were ongoing issues. That was the other thing. It was one thing after another. The building was quite unsuitable. And then when the following year, when we had to go upstairs and use the upstairs rooms, we didn't have proper fire and safety. I was really very, very worried about that. The state paid the teachers' salaries, but nothing else. And the Doggy School project relied heavily on volunteers and fundraising. Money was a constant issue. Brian Whiteside was a parent involved from the beginning. It was an awful, awful battle. There was a constant looking for money. And at a crucial stage when money had been allocated and it had been agreed with the Department of Education exactly how much money we'd have to raise and it was all raised, they suddenly came back and due to some argument about difficulty in the site and they wanted more money for us to contribute towards the foundations, a meeting was called just before a long weekend and Michael Johnson made this impassioned plea for more money. And, you know, the parents were all thinking, oh, goodness, we've given everything we have, but, you know, they, they needed more. And a group of us spent the entire long weekend calling around to parents and friends of the school, just begging for more money. And people were writing checks that they could probably ill afford, you know, that represented maybe two or three times their mortgage payments. I mean, £150 was a huge amount of money in those days, but we got the money. It just wasn't negotiable. We would always find a way, and there was just such great satisfaction from doing that. Every weekend, Michael Johnson's wife, Pat, led parents in running a home produce market in Dawkey Town Hall. It served a dual purpose. It was a great focal point for us to meet on a Saturday morning in a social environment, which was also a fundraising environment. And we actually then could sit and chat and talk about what happened in the previous week and all of that. And it also meant that we it was part of the, the gelling process into, if you like, what I would call a community. So we, there was a community of the Rocky School Project as well as a committee. Uh, so we had the committees and we had the community of the project. There was continuous fundraising and there was a market in Dawkey Town Hall every Saturday. Uh, every Saturday. And uh, I remember one parent saying about uh, the cakes and the buns and how many more buns do I have to eat? <laughs> so that was a very, very busy time, but it was a lovely time. The demand for places was so high, the school expanded to four temporary premises in as many years. A year later, the school was growing and we were able to get some accommodation at the Presbyterian Church up the road in York Road. That was grand. A year later, we, or maybe it was two years later, we needed a little more room and we moved up to the Church of Ireland Church up at the crossroads at Mountown. And they lent us their hall just beside the church there. And then we still hadn't enough room because of the length of time it took. And we finally got the use of two porter cabins beside Dunleary Vocational School up in Sally Noggin. And they had some porter cabins in the yard and we got the use of those. So the school was on four separate premises by the time our period in temporary premises was over and the new school was ready to be opened. 
The search continued for a site for a permanent school building, while teachers and parents struggled in the unsuitable premises. But they had a pioneering spirit. Mary Stewart. There was the 1971 curriculum was being introduced to the schools and the Dawker School Project really took it on board very, very quickly and earnestly. And there was that atmosphere that we were in a new situation, we had a new curriculum, we were looking forward to a new building at some stage and people were very, very enthusiastic. Parents were very enthusiastic, very supportive of the school, were very involved in the school. They were involved at management level on the board of management, they were involved in the Parent Teachers Association and then they were involved in helping out in the classroom. I remember one parent I had, she was an art teacher and she helped me with art. I was teaching in a bedroom and we had a little sink in the corner and it was quite difficult to uh, uh, take an art lesson but she was a wonderful help to me really and I learned a lot from her and then we had a lot of parents who came in and did art, other artwork. Pat Johnson came in and she taught knitting and weaving and different things for pupils, she was wonderful. But that was absolutely new. Florrie Armstrong had left St. Patrick's when the enrolment policy had changed. She became principal of the Dawkey School Project with a clear vision of a new path for primary education. She had a vision. She was disturbed when she worked in St. Patrick's in the Church of Ireland, a school in Dawkey, and when the number of Catholic children were going to that school from the locality. And then the number of pupils, of Catholic pupils, who wanted to get into the school, they just couldn't take them. And she thought, well, why can't we continue taking children from the Catholic population? And she was very cross about it with the rector, I understand, from her. And uh, she said it was years afterwards she thought about it. And she, more or less saying, we can build an extension. And she thought about it afterwards. It's a small parish. And she thought I was a little bit unfair to that rector, really. She said, um, this is some years before she died, she said to me, uh, he was thinking about the finance and how was he going to take such a burden on the small parish. And she said, I was angry with him because the children couldn't go to the school. But she said, I have softened my approach to that, she said, and I'd understand better where he was coming from now. At the beginning, we were so anxious to get things moving that we didn't sit down and work out a whole series of principles. We knew what we wanted, but we had to feel our way. And uh, people were just looking at the situation and feeling their way through it. And eventually it began to go down to paper. And eventually documents were produced. And eventually difficult documents like the catering for the different faiths in a school, how it would be operated, how it would be implemented and so on. And there were great educationists like Florrie Armstrong. Uh, she was a saint. I would never, as a local public representative and so on, and as a patron of the school, I would never deem to tell Florrie Armstrong how to operate the school because she knew and we trusted her to implement the broad principles that we supported. Florrie Armstrong wasn't just a principal who helped design a new curriculum. She was also a campaigner. 
This was her on the Seven Days programme, arguing the case for integrated education in 1974. I don't approve of conditioning of children, indoctrination, in any situation whatsoever. Mixed grouping, I see, in the best educational sense, helps the children. And this is, in fact, what we're trying to do in Dorky, mixing in every way, socially, religious and every other way. Jane Doran remembers Flory Armstrong's vital role in the development of the Educate Together model summarised in the slogan Learn Together, Live Together. She had a warmth, she had a compassion, but she also had a steel about her. And she knew what she wanted and she knew that to get it done she might have to go around the corners to get it. But because she had a vision, she knew exactly where to go. And she didn't give up easily. But she was a fantastic principal, a fantastic support. Also great crack as well, you know, we had many social nights out together, which is equally important. Mary Stewart. I remember she had her classroom next to me and she had sixth class and I had, I think, uh, first or second, some class like that. And I was very interested in what she was doing and she was doing a big project with the children and it was barriers. And I think this would have been about 1979. And uh, the, the, the barriers, of course, she went through different barriers, but then the crucial one was the, the barriers in the north and the barriers. She talked about the barrier between north and south as well, and the way of the border was the barrier between north and south, and then she went deeper into it and the barriers in the north. And I was absolutely fascinated with this project uh, that she was doing. And to see the children being involved in it and being totally taken with it as well. That, uh, you know, that was crucial, doing things like that and understanding our society and that we were not a homogenous country as some people might want us to be, but we were uh, made up of individuals and that there were different groupings in the country. And that was all right, that people could live together, even though you didn't agree with maybe one thing they were doing or another thing they were doing, but that you couldn't live with people. And uh, she, was, uh, she was a wonderful educator and an educator of the adults who were involved in the school, an educator of the staff and an educator of the children. The teachers worked within the Irish National Teachers Organisation to ensure this new model of education was recognised as a mainstream one. Some schools were nervous of the development of this concept, really. And maybe they were fearful because it was new. It was really important that the teaching staff belonging to the INTO, that we show that we were not different, that we were not doing anything different to all the other teachers across the country uh, other than uh, applying the new curriculum. And that's what we were doing, we were teaching. The only area we were different in was in the religious education programme. That was our only area of difference. Everything else uh, we did as other teachers were doing across the country. So we wanted to show that we were primary school teachers, that we were national school teachers, and that this uh, school was a national school. And it was very, very important to us always to remind people that, that we were not an elitist group. And uh, I think that allayed the fears of teachers who came into the organisation afterwards, you know, and they saw it as just another type of primary school. But we didn't think it was all that different, really. We always maintained that the difference was in the ethos and uh, that it wasn't anything else. And each type of school has its own ethos. And that was our only difference. So we had a different ethos. 
But at that time, you must remember, there was only the Catholic ethos and there was only the Protestant ethos, and there was nothing in between. With four venues on the go, a new building being planned and a new movement being formed, the Johnston's Kitchen in Sandy Cove was often a busy centre of operations. A lot of the early meetings were held in this house. We'd probably meet up in the other room up there. Or we might have met down here, wherever it was. But they would, the kids would be there, and even though it was late at night. And um, on one occasion, our youngest son, Josh, he and Bill's youngest daughter, Sonia, the two kids got together and said hello, and they welcomed each other and said, no, we, what, what would we play? We would play Mummies and Daddies, yes. Nice thing to do, and they both agreed that's what they they play next. And then one of them looked, maybe it was Josh, looked at his wrist and said, "Oh my goodness, look at the time! It's eight o'clock. It must be time for the meeting." <laughs> so that was the, that was what life was like for the young kids growing up in this old thing. We had meetings frequently. It was groundbreaking, of course, and there was a lot of opposition to it, which we shouldn't forget. But right on the ground, I mean, I think I always looked to Michael Johnson and Bill and Owen Highland and people like that and Desmond Green. They were the great thinkers with the vision and all of that. But there was this maintenance thing. And as well as that, sometimes in the summer, you know, crowds of us would go down to the school and we'd be painting it and, you know, preparing it for the new term. And there was a terrific feeling of pioneering and we were all in it together. The Doggy School project finally moved to its permanent home in Arnold Grove in Glenageary in March 1984. Finding a site, funding it and building a school took four years. Things were sort of getting sticky for a while and suddenly we got recognition basically because we were able to produce that building. Then suddenly it turned out that building was about to be knocked down and three local builders up in that area had land and they blocked it all together and the ones that we knew best I think were very much instrumental in this they basically said if we agree to what they were going to propose they would give us the site of two houses I think it was on that site and the agreement which had already been I think twice or three times agreed for a public open space we would take on the responsibility for the public open space and, and for dedicating it as such. And this would cover a whole area which three different speculative builders were working on. And that was agreed. And they then gave us, in effect, the two sites. And it was going to be a very restricted sort of site for us. But we agreed that we'd, in the public open space, the ground that suited us well because that's what we wanted. I do remember the opening of it as well, and that was a wonderful day. It was a great celebration. Just to have space and to see the children with space and they wouldn't have to climb over things and all that, that was lovely. By the time the permanent building opened, similar schools were already being planned across Dublin City. We wanted uh, the individual to have the right under the constitution to make a choice about the type of education that they would have for their children. And that was the fundamental thing that drove us. And that there wasn't the point of having it as a private school and people could be paid for it. It had to be acceptable. And we wanted to insert that model 
into the model of the Irish school system at that time so that in fact it could be replicated and we made sure as we went along that we built a structure uh, and we noted it in such a way that in fact we could deliver those structures to other groups and we could support and help them and they could use the template that we had as a template for their projects in various areas and that happened certainly in the Bray School project and it happened very early on in that project and in the North Dublin School project. On our very earliest documents Educate Together was on it from the start and Educate Together then became the name we gave to the group of projects as they were originally that met together and then ultimately Educate Together became company limited by guarantee which could be accepted by the Minister for Education as a limited company which would have the legal status to be able to be a patron of national schools. Desmond Green believes it was a rare combination of skills and timing that helped the movement succeed. We became I think an incredibly close-knit team and I particularly remember myself and Mike and Anya because we generally did much of the public speaking. And there came a time when our egos had actually, I think, been eliminated in the whole thing. So that for any of us, there was no sense as to who got the job to do the speaking, either on television or go on a radio show or whatever else like that. It didn't matter. Because it's a normal human thing that if you're in a group of people and one person gets the interview and then they're on national radio or something else like that, there's a certain amount of jealousy because the other ones, well, how didn't I get a chance to do that? But I think that the big thing about our team was that that sense was eliminated in our group. And we were a team of people who were so committed to the idea of what we wanted to achieve that our own personal egos became eliminated in that particular area. And I think that was an incredible strength to the project. Nia Vranach, later a Minister for Education, watched the movement grow in her constituency in Dunleary. It was a mixed community. We had a thriving Protestant community. We had businessmen, shop owners, the yacht clubs. So if we were all to work together, There was certainly a mix in the community and perhaps in other constituencies there would be less of that. But I think in the county I grew up in, you mixed with people in the tennis clubs, yacht clubs, dances and hops. And then we went our separate way to school and I think that gradually died out. The Doggy School project was part of the bigger movement for social change and for greater parental involvement in education. John Coulihan is Emeritus Professor of Education in NUI Maynooth. It struck me that the Dawkins School project was a brave project because the climate wasn't favourable to that. Uh, there had been such a long tradition of type of schooling from the middle of the 19th century where the churches had become the patrons and operated the schools to a large extent in their control and mode of ownership that that had become, if you like, solidified and very much over the generations established as the way things were, the status quo. And when you're ever trying to upset the status quo, particularly in areas of religion and education where loyalties tend to be very deep, it causes difficulty. One of the great things behind the Dawkins School project was the sense of purpose, the sense of surety that they were doing the right thing, that they had a base to do it, in terms of what they were doing was exercising the parental rights for 
a form of education wherein children would be educated together and where religion would be not ignored, but there would be, uh, as originally was planned, a common kind of scriptural and um, general religion, and then more specific, um, should we say, doctrinal and denominational religion would be provided for, but a bit separately. I think the location did favour it, because it seems to me that there were parents there who were well-educated, informed, and also confident that they knew the situation, they knew what they were about, and they were able to make uh, statements and uh, back their arguments with, with logic and so on. And I think that that favoured them. I would find it very difficult to, to see it emerging. You might get individual, a very small group of individuals, but there wouldn't be in numbers or staying power sufficient in other areas in the country. But that's where the Dorky School Project, if you like, was a pioneering group that led the way. And then as they went on, they were very, in my view, generous with their time and efforts. As other groups of parents contacted them for advice and guidance, I think they were very generous with their time and effort. A lot of it, you know, unrecorded, really, but I think very constructive and contributed a lot to the changing society. The look we have, I think, is, again, that it didn't become socially divisive and things like that because they proceeded on the basis of demonstrated logic and uh, performance and that it could be done, seemed to be done, and ha- had their meetings and got things going and the movement got a momentum and then it became the Educate Together movement. And I think they conducted their business in a very, in a very, shall we say, democratic way and also in a very kind of controlled way, whereas, if you like, it wasn't associated with a great bandwagon of emotion and stuff like that. You know, it was conducted in a much more cerebral way, more, should we say, structured, logical way. And I think that was all to the good. I think in the early years, all of us sort of uh, had no realisation of the amount of inertia uh, there was in the system. And also, I don't think there was ever a plot against us, but there was just bureaucratic obfuscation and hurdles placed in our way that we're continually having to jump. And they weren't placed in parallel to us. They were always placed in series. So they arrived one after the other. And I think that we had initially become very determined that time would not be one of the dimensions that would have an impact on our ideas. And I think that that sort of happened over a certain period when we agreed that whatever it took, we we would go for it. And if it took five or 10 or 15 years, that we would persist. And I think once we took the dimension of time in terms of, of success and having that, the objective achieved in a certain amount of time away as a dimension, then we knew that that was a great degree of freedom for us because we knew that we would not give up until we succeeded. And I think that was an important element in our persistence. Now, that doesn't mean that we hadn't very many highs and lows and we hadn't uh, periods of incredible frustration, which we had both with the Department of Education. I remember at one stage when we got all the everything Wilson gave us the go ahead to have the school. And then we eventually sent out the tenders. The first person to accept a tender dropped out. The second person had a much higher tender because the cost of the construction of the civil works on the site were very much higher and the department had specifically excluded those from grant aid. And that then would have meant that we couldn't have proceeded because we just didn't have the money for that on the side. So I think we met eventually with Gemma Hussey and brought in our team of people and 
picked holes in the department's decision and eventually that decision was reversed. The problem was that we couldn't actually um, uh, fail at that time and I think Michael Johnson and I signed the contract before we knew this because if we had failed to sign the contract we would have lost it and we would have lost it because the department would have proven that we didn't have the resources to carry on our idea and I think that would have been a very significant victory for those so we were not even permitting ourselves to fail in those regards and I think Gemma Hussey came in then and we got instructions from the uh, Department of Education and the Office of Public Works that those parts of the job would be grant aided and we got right up back to the level of 90% grant aid which had been granted to us in the initial place but by excluding those works I think it had knocked it down into the low 80s which I felt was total injustice but now, whether that was deliberate or not, one will never know, but it was some of the sort of hurdles that we had to deal with in terms of what I would call the mental inertia in the bureaucracy that we had to deal with. Ultimately, it has had an impact on bringing a more pluralistic, more tolerant, more acceptable society in Ireland. It was groundbreaking, and there was a lot of opposition to it, which we shouldn't forget. But right on the ground, I mean, I think I always looked to Michael Johnson and Bill and Ona Highland and people like that, and Desmond Green. They were the great thinkers with the vision and all of that. But there was this maintenance thing. And as well as that, sometimes in the summer, you know, crowds of us would go down to the school and we'd be painting it and preparing it for the new term. And there was a terrific feeling of pioneering, and we were all in it together. We wanted the individual to have the right under the constitution to make a choice about the type of education that they would have for their children. And that was the fundamental thing that drove us. And that there wasn't the point of having it as a private school and people could be paid for it. It had to be acceptable and we wanted to insert that model into the model of the Irish school system at that time so that in fact it could be replicated and we made sure as we went along that we built a structure uh, and we noted it in such a way that in fact we could deliver those structures to other groups and we could support and help them and they could use the template that we had as a template for their projects in various areas and that happened certainly in the Bray School project and it happened very early on in that project and in the North Dublin School project. We were moving into a new age, we were moving into a time when people said in a democratic procedure there's got to be possibility for things to be built up from the bottom up I think it was a movement whose time had come. The story of the Docky School project was narrated and produced by Aileen O'Mara. The programme was made with the support of the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland.